a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, and monticellocollege.org. I'm happy to have Eric Peters joining me as he does each week at this time. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm pretty good, though. I'm feeling a little bit vertiginous. I feel as though I've stepped into a time machine and gone back 33 years to 1989, given what's going on in Canada right now. Where do we begin? I mean, you know, yeah. the, the prime minister has invoked an emergency act normally reserved for like real like wartime emergencies. Tell me what your thoughts are about to the latest actions up there. Well, I, I think we've reached perhaps another one of those inflection points. Uh, there certainly is an emergency in Canada. Uh, the emergency is that the narrative is coming undone and people like Justin Trudeau and those that he represents are freaking out because they're losing control of the narrative. And as a result of that, they are treating uh, the peaceful expression of disagreement with the government. That's what we're talking about here, merely to express disagreement with the government as dangerous and illegal. And they're colluding with banks and financial institutions that people have given money to to support these truckers and simply seizing it, just outright stealing people's money without even the pretense of any kind of due process whatsoever, much less any allegation that something that someone has committed a crime other than a, the political crime of disagreeing with Justin Trudeau. And so now it's a question of who's going to blink. You know, uh, are the people of Canada going to put up with this, uh, submit to this, or are they going to do what that, that brave man did 33 years ago and, if necessary, stand in front of a tank and see what happens next? I'm looking at your article on your website, epautos.com, and it's appropriate that uh, at the end of the article or near the end of the article, you've got a, you know, a video clip of uh, Nicholas Ceausescu and his wife. And, yes. You know, nobody is wishing you know, for the same kind of outcome that the, the ruler of Romania and his wife received, but that's the dangerous ground that uh, Trudeau seems to be treading out onto. Well, of course it is. He's putting people in an impossible position. He's giving them this Hobson's choice of submitting to uh, what by any sane definition is outright tyranny, which is you know, completely, totally unjustified by circumstances, if it ever is justified, uh, or resisting it. You know, he's, he's denying them the peaceful means of, of dealing with this sort of thing in a civilized country, which is by going out and saying, look, I don't, I don't like this, I don't agree with it. Nobody's throwing rocks, nobody's beating anybody up, nobody's damaging any property. All these people are doing is expressing... Uh, their grievances with these policies. And if people are denied that option and are demonized, are criminalized, are thrown into cages, uh, have their money taken from them, what else are they supposed to do? You know, that's the, that's the corner that Trudeau is backing these people into. And by doing it, he's backing himself into a corner as well. Well, there's a, there's a lesson in here for those of us who aren't in Canada. And, of course, we wish them all the best. But yeah. the, the freezing of funds... And, and the, the ability to punish people, I think the, they now have donors lists, anybody who donated to the crowdfunding sources to help support this convoy. These are being treated like terrorism. What are the lessons we can draw for, for ourselves as far as our own money? 
Well, we should, I think, at this point, be practicing some due diligence and realizing that what is going on in Canada could certainly happen here just as easily. In fact, some of these same entities, they're transnational. You know, there may be a, a border between Canada and the United States, but these financial institutions are interrelated. And if they, if they feel that they can get away with this, if they are permitted to get away with this in Canada, uh, I think it's almost certain that that sort of thing is going to happen here as well, that they're going to leverage that tool. We've already seen this happen in the form of, uh, you know, various services like Venmo, PayPal, and whatnot, right. uh, canceling people's ability to do business. They haven't actually seized their money yet, though. Uh, but it, it is probably going to come to that uh, unless unless this is very firmly resisted as an affront to some of the most basic norms of a civilized society. To wit, you know, you can't just take people's money. There has to be there has to be uh, a process. There has to be. Uh, some some evidence that you have committed a statutory crime and that the specified punishment for that statutory crime is X, Y, or Z. You can't just say to people, hey, you know, you've expressed a heretical, wrong, thinkful opinion. You're supporting a cause we don't like, and we're just going to take all your money. And that is the most chilling part of, of what I've seen coming out of Canada, the fact that they can go after people who are merely suspected of supporting the truckers. Yes. In fact, I watched a video the other day uh, of uh, it was a woman who uh, heard a knock on her door and went to answer it, and uh, it was a, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer uh, who was very, very politely telling them about what sorts of protests are acceptable under the law. And the gist of it was, and the woman made the comment, you know, it's nice to know I'm being watched. And it turned out what happened was she had she had posted something on Facebook in support of. Uh, the Freedom Convoy. And so they're sending cops to people's houses to, you know, to make it clear, hey, we know that you support this heretical, wrong, thinkful activity and hint, 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 you know, what might happen next. Right. Now, if there's some good news, uh, my understanding is that there are still some of the, um, are they the provinces, New Brunswick, Quebec, Alberta, Saskatchewan? Yeah, they're, so far, some of them are saying, nah, bro, we're not going to go there. Um, yeah. So it's good to see a little conflict within government itself. Very much so, and I think as this elaborates, I think we're also going to see conflict within the enforcement apparatus of the Trudeau regime as well. Uh, I have to believe, you know, I hope that my faith isn't misplaced here, but I have to believe that there are good people who work for uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, for example, in the military, and who just aren't going to do this aren't going to be involved in it, just like some of the tow truck operators uh, refused to use their tow trucks to drag away the rigs of these big rig, uh, these truckers. They just, they're not going to do it. You know, so Trudeau, under this Emergency Authorization Act, uh, has, has decided that he's going to use government goons to take the tow trucks, to take the people's big rigs. You know, and I'm just wondering if, like that tank driver... Uh, 33 years ago, he's going to say, you know what? I'm not going to kill this person, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to use my weapon against this person. I'm not going to, I'm not going to attack a man who's simply trying to express his disagreement with policies that are, yeah, you know, they're pretty doggone tyrannical and unjustified. I'm not going to do that. And I think once one brave man does that, uh, you're going to see a cavalcade. At least I hope so, of people who say, you know what? I'm not doing this either. Well, it, it's it's getting intense. And, you know, I say that as someone who's sitting comfortably, you know, here in the U.S. and not uh, up there in the freezing cold. But those truckers have let yep. out. And I, I apologize for all the times that I have, you know, sneered at, you know, trucker songs or trucker movies from the 70s. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time we kind of lionized uh, the, the truckers, uh, C.W. McCall's Convoy and so forth. And, and maybe, maybe it's time to start to <laughs> lionizing them again. 
Well, we should. You know, I, I, when, I, when this subject comes up and, and I have an opportunity to talk about it, uh, I point out to people, you know, everything that you have, everything that you need, your food, uh, the wood that you use to build your house, literally everything, probably, was brought to you on a truck by a guy who drove that truck. You take that truck away, and all of a sudden, you don't have anything coming to the supermarket anymore. You don't have anything coming to Home Depot, uh, and life grinds to a halt. And keep in mind, again, all of this is about these guys saying, you know, uh, I, do not, I don't want to be injected with these, and I put, put it in air fingers quotes, vaccines that right. we now know without any question do not vaccinate, they do not provide immunity, and which have hurt an astounding number of people, uh, you know, more people than have been hurt by any actual vaccine in the past 50 years. And leaving aside this principle of, you know, I don't like this idea of the government saying that they can treat me like a lab rat and force me to undergo a medical procedure as a condition for being able to ply my trade, as you know, to work, to earn a living, uh, to, to, to feed my family. It's simply outrageous. Well, I'll be keeping a close eye on this, as I know you will as well. So I encourage my listeners, please. Go to Eric's website. He's got a great new article here on 1989 again. Um, Eric, we're coming up on our break here in a minute, but yep. in the next segment, I'd like to. There's two things I would really like to visit. One is uh, um, I'd like to to talk with you about the silence of the cases. Yes, mm-hmm. this, this is another excellent one, and and what they don't teach about snow driving. We're kind of on the yes. tail end of winter, even here in in southern Idaho. But your article about Lucky the snow you. driving, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, I mean, are, are you guys still getting the full full brunt of nature right now in Virginia? Oh, gosh, yeah. We, we got another couple inches of snow the other night, and as I'm looking out on my bleak Arctic landscape of a backyard, uh, it's about 19 degrees outside. So I have to ask, how are your chickens weathering, you know, the, the storm? Well, they're doing okay because uh, they've got heat lamps and shelter, and they've got me to go out there every morning in the cold to bring them a bucket of hot water. Yeah, that's dedication. But it's a, <laughs> well, but it's you know, a, you assume you assume responsibility for animals. You know, you have to. You, that's just part of the job. Well, and it's it's a beautiful cooperative relationship when you go and gather eggs. I'm sure it is. All right, we got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. If you haven't been to his website, you really should check it out. You'll find a lot of great automotive knowledge there, as well as some very uh, relevant thoughts on freedom. The comments are worth reading as well. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, let's talk about the the uh, silence of the, the silence case, of the cases. The cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's striking to me that you know for the past two years, any death that could in any way be attributed to the Rona was uh, touted uh, breathlessly and hysterically by the mainstream press. Even the deaths of twenty-five-year-old motorcycle riders who got killed in a uh, killed in a crash. Uh, that's a Rona death. When a 99-year-old person dies, it's not old age, it's the Rona. You know, we all know about this. Uh, but there's a studied silence about the, the cases of healthy young athletes who are dropping dead of myocarditis, heart inflammation, inflammation of the heart sac, 
heart attacks and strokes. Um, nothing like this has ever happened before. And there's this insouciant indifference to it. It's extraordinarily strange. You know, I, I, you and I can look back on our lives and think about how many times can you remember a, a 20-something-year-old professional athlete dropping dead of a heart attack on the field? Yeah. Can you remember a single very, instance of that over the course rare. of our entire lives? Yeah, it's extremely rare. And it's not just, you know, our impression. If you dig into it and look, well, okay, did this happen in the past? And the answer is absolutely not. Uh, now we have it happening almost every day, certainly almost every week. Uh, one of these things comes out. And I actually did a compilation of that just so people can go and check it out for themselves on the site. Uh, and we also have this, this strange correlation of previously healthy kids who get jabbed and all of a sudden they're crippled uh, or they're, they're having violent spasms and various other things. And nobody seems to care about this. And the reason nobody seems to care about this is because the people who don't seem to care about it, the media, as they're called, have become the PR agents of these big pharmaceutical cartels. And that's not just uh, an insulting assertion on my part. It's an objective and quantifiable fact. They, they derive much of their advertising that supports their shows from these big pharmaceutical cartels, you know, and whoever pays the piper gets to call the tune. And so these people are, on the one hand, touting with the most hysterical fervor imaginable uh, these, 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 these worst-case scenarios about the cases, the cases, the cases, which really amount to, well, somebody tested positive, you know, on this test that we now know is completely sketchy and is not, uh, you know, at all uh, reliable uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, complete radio silence when it comes to things that in prior times journalists would have said hey wait a minute this is really alarming and suspicious we should check into this and find out what's going on the media has become completely complicit has become the the, the kind of jackal that uh that operates at the behest and on the behalf of these pharmaceutical cartels and the government interesting stuff and and i'm sure you've probably heard about the uh um, observation i think it was in indiana health insurance company that pointed out, hey, there is about a 40% increase in unexplained deaths in people between 18 and 60 years of age for 2021. And I mean, a 40% increase is scary. They say that's that's like off the charts. That's a once in 300 year kind of uh, rarity to occur. Yes. And note, note further that things that were uh, sufficient to get you deplatformed or taken off Twitter and, and Facebook and all the rest of it uh, six months or a year ago, for example, the uh, the correlation of the vaccines with blood clots, uh, the correlation of vaccines with uh, a sudden uptick in strange issues that women are having uh, with their with their periods, their menstrual cycles, uh, all of these kinds of things. They're now acknowledged. You know, the drug companies themselves have come out and admitted, though you know only uh, elliptically and only to a certain degree. Oh yeah, we we actually do have an issue with with these drugs potentially causing. Uh, blood clots, potentially causing heart inflammation, potentially uh, affecting women's menstrual cycles. They've admitted this. It's out there. The problem is the media, again, Airfingers quotes, because they're just the PR hack organs of these pharmaceutical companies, they're not reporting it constantly over and over and over again, you know, every 15 minutes so that, so that everybody knows about it the way they did with the cases, the cases for the past two years. Well... I guess it's just going to have to be a lot more obvious before people will finally uh, recognize what's right in front of their eyes. Well, I, I think it has become obvious. It's just in a diffuse and decentralized way. Uh, you know, I think the word has gotten out. You know, I think, by and large, most people aren't stupid. Uh, I think that there is a percentage of the population, I call them the weapon 
hypnotized hypochondriacs. These people are out of their minds. They're literally psychologically deranged at this point and immune to anything uh, that contradicts their faith, their religious belief with regard to the narrative. But everybody else, you know, there's the hardcore 30% like us who've always been suspicious, but then the people in the middle, those are the ones uh, who have to be persuaded one way or the other. I think that they're beginning to be persuaded. They're beginning to smell a rat. You know, the weight, the sheer weight of the of the obvious misinformation and lies that have been peddled to us by the science and the authoritative sources, it's so overwhelming now that you almost have to be a, a deliberate, willful imbecile to not stop and pause and you know think something's not right here. Understood. I want to shift gears here while we have a minute, and let's let's talk about mm-hmm. what uh, what they don't teach about snow driving. Uh, what was yeah. what was the genesis for that article? Well, the genesis of it kind of actually was just thinking about the snow that's on the ground right now and thinking back to when I learned to drive on the snow, and I think you probably will have had this, the same experience. And, uh, you know, back then in those those dark ancient days of the 80s <laughs> and before, we didn't rely on technology, did we? No. Uh, you know, we relied on learning how to deal with and drive in the snow. And, uh, you know, one of the cars that I, I learned to drive in the snow in one of the best cars that I've ever driven the snow in is a car that had absolutely no technology assists. It had no traction control, no stability control. It didn't have all-wheel drive, but it did have its engine mounted over the rear wheels, and those wheels were very tall and very skinny, and so they cut right down through the snow to the pavement below, and it was the Volkswagen Beetle, the original Volkswagen Beetle. And that was one of the most capable and formidable cars in the snow that there ever was. Did you ever get a chance to drive one? I never have. I, I had a. I dated a girl in high school who who had a Volkswagen, so I, I'm familiar with it. But you know, there, it was just kind of a cute little bug car, underpowered, but it always seemed to get her where she needed to go. Yeah. Today, you know, in contrast, they go to these elaborate technological lengths to uh, endow a car. Uh, with the capability that's no longer expected of the, the driver in terms of being able to deal with the snow. And a lot of times these uh, these systems and the equipment operate across purposes. You know, people have been told, you got to get a front-wheel drive car. you got to get uh, a crossover with all-wheel drive. And they fit these cars and crossovers with these fat wheels uh, and sport-type tires that act as a steamroller and that are terrible in the snow. You know, I'm saying this is from the point of view of somebody who drives practically every new vehicle that there is, uh, and has been doing that for more than 25 years, and some of them are terrible in the snow. And a beetle would leave them far behind in the hands of somebody who actually knew how to drive it. Amazing. It's. I liked your article, and it did bring back some very fond memories of, you know, we mm-hmm. we didn't have all the amazing technology, and yet I find myself today. We got snowed in quite a bit this last, mm-hmm. you know, this last couple of months, and and that was oh, I've got to have all wheel drive, four wheel drive, you know. <laughs> I don't know where I lost my, my touch, but uh, my skills have definitely diminished over time. Well, you know, part of that is just the, the general conditioning that goes on and, and the passage of time and the impression that's created in the minds of people. Advertising is very powerful, you know, and once upon a time there were very few cars that had all-wheel drive. Remember when it was pretty much Audi and Subaru and that's it that had all-wheel drive? Right, yeah. Subaru, you know, and now it's default. Practically every car has it now or offers it. Subaru was, growing up in high school and so forth, Subaru was the gold standard for if you were Mm going to go skiing, you wanted to be in a Subaru, you know, to to get you where you needed to go. Yeah, and, you know, Subarus are still really excellent vehicles. And interestingly, part of that is because they have an engine that's similar to the old Beetle. You know, they've got that horizontally opposed, in other words, it lays flat, uh, boxer engine. Now, it's not mounted in the rear. It's mounted in the front. 
But nonetheless, you know, you've got the weight of that engine down low and pushing on the drive wheels, and that is a huge advantage. Uh, and, you know, if you combine that with some good tires, not fat tires, ideally, you know, the skinnier tires are better. And by the way, they also result in less rolling resistance and better fuel economy. A lot of people don't know that either. You do that, and along with, you know, maybe go out into a, an empty parking lot somewhere when it snows and practice and learn how, how the vehicle responds and reacts when attraction isn't optimal and learn how to deal with it so you don't have to be reliant on all this technology. One of my favorite uh, parts of growing up, actually. Eric, mm-hmm. thank you so much for being my guest. Great to visit with you once again. Always. Sounds good. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to bring on my next guest. This is going to be a familiar voice for my St. George listeners. I have Terry Hutchinson. He is a local attorney. He's a member of the Washington County, is it the school board? It's the school board, yes. And you're also, of course, the host of Bookmarks. And um, Anyway, Terry, good to catch up with you again. It's been a while. Yeah, that's right. It has. I mean, you came on the uh, Andy Griffith show with me once. Yes, uh, I this did. was some time ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but it's been a long time since we've been on the air together. And we go way back. I mean, I think you were with Mike when you took me from two days a week or to uh, five days a week on bookmarks. Wow. And I want to say that was over 20 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, that would have been. Uh, bookmarks, <laughs> bookmarks is still going strong. Although, you know, the last few months I broke my leg. I couldn't get in the studio. I can't drive. It's really hampered me, but I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks that's going to resolve and, and I'll be able to drive again and be a little more mobile. Man, I'm, but, uh, I'm sorry to hear uh, that. that must, so Bookmarks must took a miserable. hit. <laughs> it's, it's not great, but Bookmarks took a little hit, but we are still on the air after 27 years and now, we're going strong. So you, you've, been, great. you've been very busy as a member of the, the Board of Education there in Washington County. And specifically, I have you on today to talk about um, schools and age-appropriate materials, and this this is becoming this is becoming yeah. a big issue. And not just on well, are they teaching our kids naughty things? It's I mean, there's things like CRT. There's 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 other stuff that's creeping in. Talk to me a little bit about what your role is on the the school board, and then tell me about some of the issues that you're dealing with and that the Utah legislature is dealing with. Well, you know, it's really interesting to see. I was elected in 2016 uh, with Donald Trump. And I remember running at that time specifically because I felt, due to some personal experience and also some other observations, that the school school, uh, board needed a little bit stronger oversight, if you would, of what I call the bureaucracy. Now, we've got great administrators in Washington County. We've got, we've got, teachers who go be above and beyond the call. I mean, there's a lot of positive things, but we can always do better. Number one. And number two, anytime you get a big group and we've got 4,500 teachers, 31, actually 35,000 students, our budget is now $440 million. You just need more oversight. The nature of a bureaucracy is to perpetuate itself and to grow. That's just the way they work. And it happens at all levels of government. And the school board in particular is designed to be probably the closest or most intimate relationship between the voter and the elected official. 
I, I and it's grown substantially. I have over fourteen thousand voters, probably fifteen thousand in my district. I have twenty five thousand individuals in my district. Okay, that's that's a lower ratio than any other elected official in Washington County or in the state. And and obviously, you know, there's a constitutional design for that in the state constitution. As a school board member, I am one of seven votes. I cannot take any official positions for the school board. I can't do anything unless the majority of the school board goes along with it. And that's really where, you know, things happen. And obviously, if they don't go a certain way, the majority of the board didn't want to go a different direction. Now, sometimes that's done by default. You get, uh, you get uh, advice from your administrators who are professionals. We pay them, some of them a lot of money, to give us good advice about education, about these things, about how this all works, okay? But it's incumbent on us as elected officials to oversight that. It's kind of like the equivalent, as I've often indicated to my voters, uh, especially with the mask issue that was coming out, you know, that, that was torturing us last year, is that, look, it's like civilian military oversight. And so the military, the professionals, the, the, the soldiers run the tactics, they run the strategies, but they have to do it in accordance with the policies set by the civilian oversight. The U.S. Constitution is very specific about that. So it's one of seven. I, I, you know, I, I speak on behalf of myself. So last week, I wrote an editorial in the Tribune. The Tribune, about a week earlier, had written an op-ed from an author whose book had been removed from our schools. And um, I'm not able to comment at this moment about the specifics of that and how it came about and what's happening with it or anything else. But I, I felt that the coverage in particular and the emphasis nationwide, of course, is not emphasizing one important factor, and that is age-appropriate nature of the materials. Now, there's a Supreme Court case that talks about this. It's called Island Tree versus Pico, Island Tree School Board versus Pico. And in that case, the school board got a list from some concerned parents or somewhere of about 12 books that they felt were filthy and inappropriate to be in the school library. They assigned it to a committee. The committee said, you know, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And then the school board went ahead and they just removed them all anyway. The ACLU comes in or somebody comes in, they sue them. It goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court has three justices with what they call a plurality opinion that says, yes, school libraries are treated different than curriculum. Acquiring a book has a different standard than once the book is in the library. If you're going to remove a book from the library, you know, there are instances where you can do it. But in this instance, they didn't. They did it for wrong reasons. Well, unfortunately, there only had three votes for that. There was a fourth vote supporting them sending it back for a trial to the trial court, which is ultimately what happened. And he had a different rationale for you know, returning it for trial with a different standard than the one outlined by the three. And then there was a fifth vote to return it for trial to get more facts without any kind of standard whatsoever, just saying, I think it should go back. So it went back for trial. Then it settled. Okay. There were four in the dissent who said, no, 
School boards have the right to control what's in their school libraries, but that was only four votes, not five. There's not been another Supreme Court since, Supreme Court case since. But everybody, and especially, you know, groups that want to promote keeping things in libraries, they believe that that is controlling. And I have a little different take on that. And so there's a more gray area, and it's not as open and shut. It is our nature as school board officials to be conservative with the taxpayer money, particularly because whatever we spend on litigation, Brian, comes out of students' pockets, so to speak. So we don't want to be reckless with that. But every now and again, you got to take a stand if somebody's going to attack you for doing something like this. Whether or not that ultimately happens, you know, going forward, I'm a big proponent for that. And and if someone were to say, well, Tara, you're overreacting or this isn't attacking. They're just questioning, you know, what you do. But they're using phrases like book burning. <laughs> they're using it's a new yeah. illiteracy while you're you're burning books, which, of yes. course, puts you in yes. some very unwelcome company historically. But, uh, you know, anybody who's listened to bookmarks knows you won't find a stronger advocate oh. of literacy <laughs> than you. Well, I, you know, and I pointed that out in the, in the editorial that I did. I said, listen, I've done the daily radio program for this law. I spent eight years on the Washington County Library Board, six of those years as the president. We doubled our library in size. We had these questions come up. What is appropriate for a public library to stock? And we would have people wanting us to put R-rated movies in and things like that. Well, those were the kinds of questions we dealt with 20, more than 20 years ago. The circumstances change. And there's a big difference between a public library that's open to everybody and a school library that is specifically aimed for kids, the vast majority of whom, there's a few exceptions, are under 18. And so it's not incumbent on us to provide books, and I get that. But the case law pretty much says, listen, once you put a book in your library, however it got there, that's something that you have to give it extra scrutiny because of the First Amendment. And I'm a big constitutionalist. And as will be shown a little later this week, in fact, tonight I'm on a Facebook Live presentation about some proposed legislation from the Utah legislature about books. And anybody that wants to go to the Utah Parents United page will see me on there and we're going to have a conversation. You and I will talk about a couple of these issues too as we go forward. But you, you, you know, there are real technical issues here. First of all, you have curriculum that all the students have to have. School boards have much more control over that. First Amendment does not apply to that as much. And those are issues like critical race theory. Those are issues like those other things. Then you have the school libraries where the plurality says, oh, this is a voluntary thing. This is just something kids go to. No, sometimes they go there, the teacher just says, listen, you've got to have a book, and it's more than 300 pages. You just go pick out the book. Go ahead. We've got to take a real quick break. I'm talking with Terry Hutchinson. We're going to continue this conversation. And, Terry, when we come back, I want to ask you about some of the books that have been in question and why they are in question, just to kind of give uh, give parents sure. an understanding of you know, and, and maybe they can yes. put themselves in your shoes. <laughs> how, how will I make the Solomon-like <laughs> decisions? All right, we're, we're talking with yes. Terry Hutchinson. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Terry Hutchinson is my guest. He has served on the Washington County School Board since 2017. You've probably heard him as the host of Bookmark. He's Bookmarks. He's been a very uh, prominent voice on Southern Utah Radio. And we are talking about uh, appropriateness, age-appropriate books in libraries. And and Terry, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm. I have this lurid interest, but I'm curious. What are the what are the titles that are that are raising some eyebrows these days, where a line may have to be drawn? And and you know, that's well, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of websites. Yeah, there's a lot of websites, Brian, that have some of these titles and have excerpts from them. And I'd encourage you to just do a little research. Um, different different books are being challenged, and one of the arguments for to support the books being in the library is that they represent underrepresented or minority communities, or there's a diversity argument, and that's all well and good. And one of the purposes I said in my, in my uh, editorial is, hey, we welcome those. We want our children to be exposed to different lives, different experiences. Books take you places that you can't experience for yourselves. You can experience someone's life in the inner city to a certain degree, vicariously, through reading books, and it's always been that way. But the problem is that many of these books have graphic sex scenes that are inappropriate for certain ages of students. And some of the graphic novels in particular, and I've said this on my program for a long time now, is that parents look at something and they say, oh, it's a graphic novel. It's a comic. It's like Superman. No, it's not. (laughs) They need to be watching a lot of that stuff, particularly stuff coming from Japan, which is what we wrestled with in the the, – back when I was on the County Library Commission. So there are some books out there that have graphic acts visually of pedophilia between a man and a boy. There are other things like that. There are books that are challenged for violence, for rape. You know, the state kind of is, is in the process of putting forward some standards. Our state library board has some recommendations. We're in the process of going through and, and, and issuing some new guidance both in terms of there's two arms to this. One of them is in terms of a removal challenge if that's brought by a parent or somebody else. But there's another one for acquisitions where we're going to encourage and require some accountability on the part of those putting the books in the library that they meet certain standards. And it's a balancing act, as the First Amendment would require, between the literary value of something and then what exactly is the language that may or may not be age appropriate. And there's also a community standard involved. And to a certain degree, that's a local standard, but then they drag in, the court cases are dragging in national standards, which is where you run into a problem because what's, what's acceptable in the, say, the West Coast communities, San Francisco, for example, or somewhere else, uh, may not be really in line with our community. So those are all balancing acts. Those are tough. And then as school boards, we on our school board anyway, do not intend to get involved in those decisions. We are making a policy to set up a committee made up of certain individuals weighed with parent, parent. We're going to have parents on that committee to participate in that. They'll read the books and then they'll make determinations and see where the, where things fly, you know? And if you remove a book though, as a school board, you have to be prepared to run the risk of being sued because you know they love to, to just poach out there. And the threat of suit is what they use to intimidate school boards. Right. And this is where we need a lot more involvement from school board members. And this is where it's changed in the five years I've been on the board, Brian. Um, you know, 
most of the school board members are people who care about reading, they care about education, they care about teachers, they care about kids and, and, and administrators, they love their schools, and they just want to be supportive. They're used to going to the legislature, getting whatever funding they can get. Please don't put too many strings on it for us and everything else. And times are changing. And we as school board members, this is just my personal belief here, need to change with it and become more either, if not more aggressive in terms of the political aspects of some of these challenges, but in terms of at least strengthening ourselves so that we know where some of these landmines are and we are going to help navigate them as best we can in line with our community values and our standards. And this is where we're getting a lot of new legislation proposed by the Utah State Legislature, in part because of all this parental involvement that you see nationwide. The, the parents in many areas feel their school districts are not being responsive to their needs and desires. And there's a fine line between, okay, we listened to you, we heard you, but we disagree, we're going to go forward, and we're not even going to pay attention to you. I mean, we still are a democracy in the limited sense of the word, republic, whatever you want to say. So if I disagree with you, that doesn't mean that I don't, you know, that I'm not paying attention to you or considering what you say. It just means I think we need to go in a different direction. And, and Terry, so there's that. There's, I, I don't think mm-hmm. that any person, even someone who's trying to be, you know, exceptionally fair, could help but come to the conclusion that uh, there, there are agendas that are being pushed. And, and I know that uh, it's always under the best. Oh, absolutely. Oh, diversity is so and caring and kindness and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that, mm-hmm. that needle relentlessly goes in one direction only. It's, it's certainly not a two way street, you know, um, it, it feels and it feels more and more like this is pressure from groups, you know, with the threat of lawsuits. You either include this or or you're being, you know, a bigot or whatever. Um, I can't imagine how difficult it is to to balance that um, because everything that gets politicized seems to become a power struggle. So the, I, I guess what I'm saying is there are people who are eager to politicize this so it can become a power struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little bit of a unicorn because if you're going to do that, my attitude is bring it, baby. Let's strap it on. Let's go. Let's get a court decision. Let's go to the next level to get a court decision. But that costs money, and that costs taxpayer money. And even I am not going to be reckless with taxpayer money. You know, that those are the things that we have to do. Or the voters can be very specific and put people in and with, you know, kind of on the way that campaigns go. School board elections is going to be very interesting this fall because – Nationwide in particular, I'm anxious to see how many of them change. Because at any given time, normally half of a school board is up for grabs. We've got four members out of our seven who are running for re-election this year. Are they going to have opponents? Who are those opponents going to be? What are going to be the terms of the debate and the campaign? And so far, most school board elections are pretty sleepy. So as an elected school board member, generally it's like, eh, he's only on the school board. No big deal. I mean, hey, I've run two elections now. I've had... You know, thousands of people vote to support keeping me where I am and to get me where I am over an incumbent who was beloved. So it's a it's a real interesting scenario. And and some of the legislation and I'll be talking about some tonight that to me has a real interesting constitutional beat, Brian. And that's what you and I were going to talk about. It's it's a little bit based on the Texas abortion law. Now, I am very anti-abortion and I support not having the abortion in the Constitution, I 
think it would be rightfully overturned by the Supreme Court. But having civil people enforce it rather than the state, I'm, I'm really queasy about that with regard to the Constitution. And because you can do that with guns, and it's being proposed in liberal states, I don't support sanctuary cities of any kind, whether it's immigration or guns. Guns are clearly constitutional. Immigration is clearly illegal, but it doesn't matter. I don't think cities and states should should be able to go their own way on those. So it's really a it's a constitutional dynamic for me. I don't think the citizens should be allowed to sidestep the constitutional issues that we wrestle with, even though the result is good. Because Interesting. It's obviously, it's uh, you know it's obviously minimizing the abortion rate in Texas, which is great. Um, in, in our case, if we enact this law that's been proposed in Utah. Citizens can use civil lawsuits to clean up the libraries, which are First Amendment issues. Do we want to put civil authorities over enforcing the issues of the Constitution? That's a mechanism where I'm a little queasy about that because the whole purpose of the Constitution is to control the state. And yet we have a different branch than the criminal control or even the civil control if it's authorized by the Attorney General's office who we elect. We're turning it over to unelected people. Uh, I, I, I'm curious where you are on that. And maybe that's a topic for another discussion because I know we're running out of time. We are going to have to pick that up another day. I, you know, I, I'm coming to the, the conclusion that it, at most levels of government, with the exception of perhaps the, the local level, um, these problems deserve to be solved, you know, at the lowest possible level. And, and you know, the more local input, the better. But uh, I, yeah. I, I think above all, we have to have the freedom to ask these kinds of questions. This isn't going to happen when parents, you know, go in guns blazing. It's not going to happen when school boards push back and well, these guys are like terrorists, like we've seen in some of the ones back east. Uh, Terry, yes. for people who want more mm-hmm. information, uh, we got about 30 seconds here. Where would you direct them to, to find out more about this issue? Well, I just go to some of the social media sites. I'd go to, in, in Utah, they have the Utah Parents United. They have a site called Laverne at the Library. There are some others that can give more information about what the books are, what are contained. They can look in their own school libraries to see if they're there or not. I mean, most of the people found that the majority of books on that list aren't in ours. Okay, Terry Hutchinson, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, I'm thanks gonna, for having me, Brian. I'll have you, you back again. Thanks. All righty, you bet. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Thanks for making us part of your day, part of your quest for truth. At least I believe that's what you're you're doing. You're looking for a little more truth, a little more light, a little better understanding of the world around you, as well as some encouragement that, in fact, you can make a difference. You've come to the right place. Come, revel in wrong think. Claim your birthright as a free individual, and uh, let's let's all become what we were born to become. Let's make the difference we were born to make. Great sponsors make this program possible. They include MonticelloCollege.org, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, 
and lifesavingfood.com. So let's take just a moment here to talk about the difference between things that are under our control versus things that are not under our control. I think the last couple of years has, well, it's, it's been a powerful illustration of uh, who has control issues versus who doesn't. Now, I'm going to just put this out there, and you can reject this if it doesn't uh, fit your point of view, but I'm of the opinion that we all have control issues. I think there's a latent little tyrant inside each one of us, which, if indulged, will encourage us to you know, try to exercise dominion over other people because we know what's best for them. Now, most often this is going to come out as we're parents, right? I mean, you know, we have our kids and we're responsible. At least I feel like I have a responsibility to God to raise my kids the best that I can. I feel like I will actually be accountable to my creator for the job that I did as a dad. Thankfully, my kids are really forgiving because Lord knows I've made enough mistakes along the way. But the most unhappy people I see outside of a family setting, the most Karen-ish behavior that I see in society tends to come from people who have not yet figured out what's under their control versus what isn't. And the truth of the matter is, of all the stuff going on around us, there's a great deal that's taking place that you and I really don't have any direct influence on. Once you learn to distinguish those things that you can control versus those you can't, it's amazing the amount of peace that you can enjoy in your life. Now, there comes with this, though, an understanding that when you do identify things that, you know, you do have some kind of influence or you have some kind of control over, well, if those things are under your control, then, you know, you may have a duty to look after those things. And if that's something that you have become serious about, you need to understand that habit can become a superpower in that regard. Looking at the latest essay from Paul Rosenberg, this one came to my email inbox yesterday. And if you haven't been to his website, freemansperspective.com, you should go. You should sign up and uh, enjoy these weekly gems of wisdom. Paul Rosenberg says, Habits can help us immensely or hurt us immensely, and if we don't pay attention to them, they will be formed in us by accidental processes. And over time, they make such a tremendous difference in our happiness and effectiveness that they really are like a superpower. He says, one night, 30 years ago now, I found myself listening to Milt Rosenberg's magnificent radio show. He says, it was the best interview show I've ever known, as he was interviewing Margaret Thatcher, former Prime Minister of England. In the middle of the interview, in just a passing comment, she said this, Habits are either the best of friends or the bitterest of foes. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I must have been ready to hear it, because I realized in that moment that I could arrange my life in massively beneficial and painless ways by creating, produ- by creating productive habits. And he says, over the following decades, I've seen the proof of it. Without cultivating my habits, he says, I'm quite sure I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, and very certainly not as well. So it's no exaggeration to say that good habits bless us all our days, and bad habits curse us all our days. Things we do automatically have a tremendous and compounding effect on our lives. And that is what habits are. Things that we program ourselves to do automatically. So if you get in the habit of being lazy, you won't accomplish much. If you get in the habit of working hard, you will accomplish many things. You'll also be much happier. Lazy people aren't happy because they're forever blaming someone or something for their problems. Productive and active people, on the other hand... Now, they may not be happy all the time, and they may still have worries, 
but they feel the satisfaction of accomplishment. And more than feeling it, they know that they have earned it. So he says, if you want to be happy and successful, one of the first things to do is build habits that serve you. So here's how to create habits. He says, I learned the process of creating habits sometime prior to the radio show that set me on my path in a book by Dr. Robert Anthony. And it's this. You ready for this? If you repeat an action for 28 days, it will become a habit. That action, by the way, could include thinking in a specific way. Now, here's a harmless experiment to prove that statement. Fold your hands by interlacing your fingers. Check to see which hand is on top. Usually, it's the left pointer or index finger that ends up on top of the pile. Reverse the order. If your left is on top, put the right on top or vice versa. This will probably feel uncomfortable, but do it anyway. Now, for the next several weeks, force yourself to use the reversed order. No exceptions are allowed. Pay attention to yourself and be tough. Now, Paul Rosenberg says if you do this religiously at the end of four weeks, 28 days, you'll be doing it almost automatically, and the original order will feel almost as uncomfortable as the reverse order does now. So he's inviting you, do this for yourself, prove it to yourself. Once you've seen that this works, you'll face the next question, which habits shall I change? Now, see, creating habits requires work. So it's work that you can let go of after a month or so, but it still requires energy and a significant amount of time. So you'll want to make a list with the most important habits on top. Once you have your list, go at them one at a time. Now, he says you're probably better off building good habits than breaking old ones, but if you need to break old habits, here's something to remember. The job is not just forcing yourself to not to do things, but rather to replace your old habits with something better. So when you find yourself about to indulge the bad habit, replace it with something else. Pick one simple, appealing thing, just one thing, and jump to it as fast and hard as you can every time you feel the old habit gnawing at you. Even singing a specific song to yourself every time you have the, the, the old habit pushes at you, rather, will work. After a month, you will find that things have changed. Now, he says you can do these things if you choose to. After the first month, the effort slips away and the benefit continues, probably for life. You'll end up doing the right thing without stress and for a long, long time. Now, he also reminds us, though, that little habits matter, too. The habits that you build up or tear down, the habits that you modify, they don't have to be big things to make a big difference. So here's a seemingly trivial example. Someone said, one time I was in the habit of reading a newspaper every day, but I found that I was spending a lot of time on it and that I got better news on the Internet in less time. So even though I enjoyed my daily paper, it was no longer the best use of my time. So I changed the habit into checking Internet news sites and saved myself about 15 minutes per day. Now, 15 minutes per day may not seem like a big thing, but it is. Paul Rosenberg says by saving 15 minutes per day, you save an hour and 45 minutes per week or 91.25 hours per year. Over 10 years, that's 912.5 hours. And considering that those are all waking hours, that adds up to 57 days, almost two months. So the payoff of little things can be very large. Setting your habits pays big. And he says it's also it's tremendously important to know that you are able to improve your life. Wanting to improve your life is a fine impulse, but knowing that you can do it takes you to a considerably higher level. 
And he finishes with a final thought from George Washington. Rise early, that by habit it may come familiar, agreeable, healthy, and profitable. It may for a while be irksome to do this, but that will wear off and the practice will produce a rich harvest forever thereafter. Now that's another comment from someone who knew by experience. So I don't know if it was just me who needed to hear this message from Paul Rosenberg about how habits are a superpower. But as I look around me, and and look, I feel the frustration as I see so many things that are just, you know, unconscionable. I I look at the tug of war right now between the people up in Canada and their government. I look at the things that are are out of their control versus the things that they can control. And it just makes me all the more determined to clarify in my life what are the areas where I need to improve or where I can actually exert that kind of self-control. What are the habits that I need to change? I didn't mean to, uh, you know, give you an assignment here. I don't want to send you away with homework, but if you're looking at a way to feel more empowered, to feel more confident, to learn to trust yourself... I think what Paul Rosenberg is suggesting here is one of the simplest and most effective ways to do it. And it just starts with setting the right habits. By the way, listening to this show can hopefully be one of those habits. Thank you for making it one of your daily routines. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout-out here for lifesavingfood.com. Click on the link that I provide in my daily show notes, and you will have a a quick trip right to the lifesavingfood.com website where you can choose from a number of different uh, food storage plans or just different individual items that would go a long way towards rounding out your self-reliance. And uh, just to make it interesting, uh, I want you to know Kendall, who is the owner of LifesavingFoods.com, also, uh, he he cuts my listeners a special break. 20% discount on what you order, no sales tax, no delivery charge. So there's a little incentive right up front to take that next step and to to shore up your ability to stand on your own. Again, LifesavingFood.com, I do appreciate them being a sponsor of this program. I don't want to date myself. Uh, You know I'm somewhere north of 50 years old, but I remember very well the song Convoy by C.W. McCall. In fact, I was uh, probably about a 10-year-old kid at the time, got my first walkie-talkies, you know, for Christmas, about the time that that song was popular. And, you know, there was a period in the 70s where uh, that song plus uh, other songs, movies, were made all about truckers. And I've got a great article here from Robert E. Wright. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. It's just titled Convoy. But if you are 45 or older, I think you'll really appreciate what he has to say here. He says, Americans aged about 45 or older may dimly recall a song from the mid-70s called Convoy. It was a campy part of the genre called Outlaw Country that leveraged the CB radio and lingo, 10-4, good buddy, crazes that were then sweeping the country. 
Now, he says, I could explain every line to you in intricate detail, even the one about the swindle sheets. But instead, he says, I want to concentrate on the song's climax when a mighty convoy of a thousand screaming trucks crosses the Jersey state line by crashing the toll gate doing 98. Like paper laces, the night Chicago died, a a pro-popo ballad narrated from the perspective of the son of a police officer involved in an epic shootout with Al Capone's gang, Convoy doesn't depict a specific incident, but rather evokes folk memories to stir the mood of the masses. And Convoy's lack of specificity potentially endows the song with a timeless quality, but few have invoked it in reference to the epic convoys currently protesting Canada's COVID policies in Ottawa, and at several border crossings. Robert E. Wright says, frankly, Twisted Sisters, we're not going to take it, sung here by protesters in Ireland, is a lot catchier. But, of course, the Freedom Convoy is so much more, is about so much more than simply finding the right anthem for the anti-mandate movement. He says, what began as a very belated show of mutual commitment has evolved into a grown-up version of an Occupy movement like the ones that swept major U.S. cities in 2011 and chopped up Seattle and Portland in 2020. Now, he says, I say grown up because the truckers are not living in tents on the sidewalk, snapping their fingers or chilling in warm weather while making meaningless declarations of independence or vague policy demands. The truckers are honking their horns in dangerously frigid temperatures while seriously disrupting Canada's domestic and international trade. Most importantly... They have a single, clear, and just demand. Freedom. The convoy protesters want freedom from senseless, unscientific COVID restrictions and mandates and freedom from a ruling class that ignores their own rules and treats everyday Canadians with derision and disrespect by painting what are mostly, truly, mostly peaceful protesters as members of a deranged fringe of white supremacists. Instead of using the protests as a way to save face while lifting their senseless COVID policies, Canada's leaders have doubled down yet again. That's too easy to do today when the worst thing that happens to politicians is that they lose their jobs. Now, he says Canada has a long, though mostly forgotten, history of protest against corrupt leaders, including the rebellions of 1837 to 1838. Like Americans, Canadians would not hesitate to subject wayward politicians to nightly charivari, or rough music. I've not heard that term before. In the most egregious cases, they destroyed politicians' personal property, including torching their houses or pulling them down with ropes, which was safer for neighbors and re-lowered building costs. But the notion was politicians must pay personally if they and those who follow them into office are to relearn the lesson they had forgotten— that they are the servants of the people, not their overlords. Now, as servants of the people, leaders should resign in disgrace if they ever anger enough people to induce them to take extreme actions like blockading the seat of government for weeks. Prime Minister Trudeau fled the capital not out of fear for his life, but out of shame. The moment those 10,000 screaming trucks entered Ottawa, his leadership failure became palpable to all. Robert E. Wright says thousands of Canadian citizens have been calling literally on the phone for Trudeau's ouster ever since. Perhaps another vote of no confidence, the parliamentary equivalent of a recall, will free Canadians from the vaccine mandates, which at this point make no more sense than amputating the arms of New Yorkers to stop the recent spate of subway platform murders. 
But if getting kicked out of office into lucrative book, TV, and speaking deals is all that happens to tyrants, what is there to prevent the next PM, like the new governor of New York, from continuing unconscionable and failed policies? So, Robert E. Wright says, I recently suggested fizzlicking or replacing failed health agencies, but what can be done with their leaders? He says, nobody wants to contemplate violence. Even libertarians who know the non-aggression principle is a tit-for-tat strategy and not absolute pacifism. So he says, I'm going to suggest once again implementation of a bonding mechanism. Instead of a mere oath to uphold the Constitution or Canada's Charter of Rights, politicians should pledge their entire net worth that they will not violate the law. That should make them timid when it comes to policy experimentation, like lockdowns and forced mass vaccination during a pandemic, which is exactly the check that the people need. Kind of fun to revisit that old song, of Convoy, and I like uh, Robert E. Wright's take on this as well. Now, of course, as, as we've talked about, you know, Canadian officials have, have taken the mask off, and it's not all of them. But at the top, you know, Trudeau and his next in in command, they're going after people's bank accounts. If you donated $25 or more to one of the crowdfunding sources for the truckers, you are, in their eyes, being considered and and I guess they're, they're considering treating you as a terrorist for doing so. Yeah, that ought to get back the confidence of the people. That should get people right on board and ready to, to do whatever their leaders ask of them. No. You know, I I pray for the truckers. I'm sure a lot of people do. I pray that they'll be protected. I pray that they will not be subjected to the violence of the state. But it seems pretty clear that the leaders in Canada at this point, at least in, in Ottawa, are determined they're going to hang on to power by any means necessary. They're going to force this issue. They're going to deny people their rights. And that's essentially what uh, what Prime Minister Trudeau has done. He's invoked a, a war emergency or emergency war act and essentially suspended people's civil rights. Why? Well, because they're asking for freedom. Hmm. Yes. We can't have that, can we? Don't these people know who he is? Don't they don't these people know their place? Of course you and I understand. The problem for him is The people do know who they are. They do understand their place. Most importantly, they understand who is the master and who is the servant. This is something that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau apparently has has, uh, gotten crosswise in his little mind. So, looking for a peaceful resolution, I hope it happens. But the fact that government is going after people's bank accounts, trying to take from them what they what little they have left. Yeah, that seems like a really good idea. People desperate enough to stop what they were doing and spend weeks occupying, you know, the the seat of government in Ottawa. Yeah, let's just take away what little bit they have left. Let's start treating them like criminals. Is there anyone more dangerous than a person who has nothing left to lose? Just wondering aloud. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. 
Welcome back to the show. Again, thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I was going to say wrong thinkers all across the country, but truth truth be told, we have wrong thinkers all around the world who are a part of our audience. And wherever you are, if you are standing for freedom, I stand with you. And uh, and this this program is about encouraging people to make that stand even if it's difficult. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, if you live in St. George, Utah, you are in luck because this is a local business. This is the place where you can get, for instance, handy quilter long arm quilting machines. You can't just, you know, it's not just a matter of, well, I'll just go pick one up. When you buy from Sewing and Quilting Center, you get a very competitive deal. You get the best service all the time because they service everything that they sell. And they can not only install them, but they can also train you how to use what you buy from them. Whether it's a long arm quilting machine or a sewing machine or a serger or an embroidery machine. They also carry Cuddles fabric, 35% off. That's a nice discount. The embroidery thing intrigues me. And I'm actually, I'm going to have to sit down. I've got, I've got, to, I've got to talk with uh, Teresa and Eric. I would really like to, if you've seen my Wrong Thinker mugs, it's got my, my logo and revel in Wrong Thinker, I'd really like to come up with some ball caps or something like that. Is that something you'd be interested in? Anyway, I'll have that conversation. But in the meantime, let your uh, interest in sewing take you to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Tell them you heard their ad. Do business with them if it makes sense to you. You know, U.S. leaders have been very concerned now for some time that Russia and Ukraine are soon going to be at war. And there's, it's not like, wow, this just came out of nowhere. Suddenly Russia starts looking for people to invade. And the, the outrage on the part of U.S. leaders and the interest and the, the denunciations that they're expressing, well, this cannot be, this cannot be allowed, uh, to me, speaks of a kind of hypocrisy that uh, our leaders are very good at at avoiding, given you know what they did to Iraq, given what they did to Afghanistan or or Libya. It just seems like uh, this this push 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 for uh, some kind of conflict between Russia and Ukraine seems to be at least from the part of the U.S. government justification for more American interventionism. Got a great article here from Barry Brownstein. His essays are always wonderful. But it's a great reminder that America's glory is not dominion, but liberty. It's titled John Quincy Adams on Ukraine. Barry Brownstein says John Quincy Adams never wrote about Ukraine, but he did offer timeless advice on foreign policy. Arguably, a major root of the crisis in Ukraine occurred in 2008 when President Bush strongly supported NATO membership for the Ukraine. Imagine Putin strongly supporting a Russian alliance with Mexico or Canada. Well, on the 4th of July in 1821, then-Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, the son of founding father John Adams, delivered an address on foreign policy. In that address, he advised America to not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, but instead to offer the hand of honest friendship, of equal freedom, of generous reciprocity. Adams, who later became president, offered eloquent advice in 1821 that America be a shining example of freedom, but not a vindicator of freedom. Here's how he said it, quote, Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will America's heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy, 
She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. She will recommend the general cause by the countenance of her voice and the benignant sympathy of her example. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says, Adam's advice has faded from memory. With our forgetting, has our own freedom eroded? Adams foresaw that meddling in the affairs of other countries would induce a troubling shift in America's mindset from liberty to force. Again, here's how John Quincy Adams put it. Quote, she well knows that by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and, of, and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. The fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. She might become the dictatress of the world. She would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. End quote. Now, there's a couple other points that, that need to be made here. And, jo- and uh, Barry Brownstein says, is the warning of John Quincy Adams relevant today? Well, listen to this before you answer. Adams concluded, America's glory is not dominion, but liberty. Her march is the march of the mind. She has a spear and a shield, but the motto upon her shield is freedom, independence, peace. This has been her declaration. This has been, as far as her, as far as her necessary intercourse with the rest of mankind would permit, her practice. End quote. So to the question, what has America done for the benefit of mankind? Adams had this answer. Let our answer be this. America, with the same voice which spoke herself into existence as a nation, proclaimed to mankind the inextinguishable rights of human nature and the only lawful foundations of government. America, in the assembly of nations, since her admission among them, has invariably, though often fruitlessly, held forth to them the hand of honest friendship, of equal freedom, of generous reciprocity. She has uniformly spoken among them, though often to heedless and often to disdainful ears, the language of equal liberty, equal justice, and equal rights. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says today a library built of local stone stands just a few feet from the Adams family home at Peacefield, just south of Boston. This was the first presidential library in the United States. It houses the 14,000 volumes that John and John Quincy Adams owned. These were books that they bought and read, books of ideas that engaged their minds. Today, a presidential library means a place in which documents are stored, papers that document actions, many of which have eroded our liberties, and papers that explain why the man should be considered great for those actions nevertheless. Now, he says, you say the world is more complicated today. Yet, if Bush had followed the advice of Adams and Jefferson... Would we be in the midst of another foreign policy disaster to be handled by an infirm and easily angered President Biden? Minds and hearts at war are a dangerous thing. Leaders of principle and intellect are in dangerously short supply. He says, in coming days, we will be told President Biden is a champion of American values. Adams would disagree. I would encourage you, if you haven't done it already, Go to mindsetshifts.substack.com and subscribe. This is Barry Brownstein's uh, Substack page. It'd be well worth your while. I just, I love his analysis. He, he comes from a, a position of, of knowledge 
but more importantly there's there's a there's a take of principle and and there's a there's a gentleness to his take on things that is it's just great i i find it very appealing because i've just had enough of people who you know authoritatively pronounced this is how it is now go make it so that seems to be the the mark of the political class and more often than not they're speaking out of something other than their mouths because they they just say whatever they need to say in order to get elected and in order to keep power and do whatever they need to do in order to keep the dollars flowing to keep them getting reelected i mean if you haven't figured out by now that politics is is an extremely amoral kind of pursuit you know, it, it should be pretty easy to spot at this point. All right, coming up next, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about January 6th, the 2021. I want to give this preface before we actually go into that story. I'm not trying to uh, excuse the people who misbehaved at the U.S. Capitol, whether it was trespassing or anything else, the people fighting with police officers and whatnot. But I bring this event up often, not because I think, uh, you know, because I think it was great, you know, that people rose up and, you know, clashed with police and that there was, you know, conflict there. But I wholeheartedly reject this narrative that it was an insurrection and, you know, the American people narrowly avoided having a bloody, you know, overthrow of their government. That, to me, is nothing more than self-serving melodrama on the part of the political class. And, of course, they've been milking this thing for well over a year. There are people still sitting in filthy jails in Washington, D.C., awaiting trial, who don't deserve to be sitting in jail. Especially since for all the vaunted cries of, it's an insurrection, insurrection, nobody has been charged with insurrection. I mean, that's kind of a curious oversight. You had a lot of charges of misbehavior in a public place or trespassing, you know, without permission in a restricted building. Quite a different thing. And I guess we're supposed to believe that, well, you know, the political class has been offended. Therefore, we should hand all of our freedoms over, put them on the ground in front of them, and, you know, I guess burn them in case they tempt us to, to you know, act out again. Not so. And as you will hear in the next segment, new video has emerged that casts even greater doubt on the prevailing narrative of the insurrection. I'll share that with you just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us. And a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Thank you so much for being a sponsor of the show. If you want to reach out to Heather, there's a link that will send you directly to her email. It's in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. So, yeah, I mentioned in the last segment that, uh, you know, one of the things that we're learning about uh, January 6th is that uh, as new video footage comes out, it seems like the truth starts to become a little more clear. And I'm going to link to a story. This, this is in today's show notes. I want you to check out the footage for yourself because this footage clearly shows trained plainclothes operatives coordinating to break into the Capitol. And, you know, you can look at it and say, well, you know, Brian, you know, it's, this, this may be doubtful, but the video shows pretty clearly what it shows. It's, it's not just a matter of, well, you could interpret this, you know, 
in any number of ways. But what's crazy to me is how utterly silent our mainstream media is, which I guess would make sense if they were trying to promote a different narrative. So this was published on thegatewaypundit.com. And this is an article uh, that was originally published, I guess, at americangulag.org by Nick Mastrolangelo, Mastra Angelo, and Laura Elizabeth Jenkins. American Gulag apparently obtained this footage from Tommy Tatum, which shows a small group of unidentified individuals working in tandem to break a window on January 6th. In this video, a black-hooded man carries an Asian woman dressed in red with a red hood, a U.S. flag scarf, and a MAGA hat onto the windowsill on the west side of the Capitol building. An individual wearing military-issued glasses, a black mask, black earmuffs, and a green military-style fleece cap checks this occurrence and is pointed out at the end of the video. Now, the Asian woman motions to someone in the crowd and stomps her feet along with the drumbeat. Though she acts inconspicuously, she gradually kicks her foot back more aggressively. She's trying to knock out the window. And she fails, as you can see in the video. Within minutes, the individual in the green cap, black eyeglasses, and black mask motions for a man in a black helmet with an asp, that's a collapsible baton, to proceed forward, striking the window, which he does. A man in a white Hanes mask, camouflage ball cap, and sunglasses fixes his gaze on the scene, speaking and motioning as well. Now, at one point, the man with the asp baton looks directly at the individual wearing the eyeglasses, green cap. He has, as he pounds the window, she appears to instruct him, lowering her hand. She's actively working alongside him. Eyewitness accounts before this mention Antifa members working alone or in small groups to break windows, yet this breach is unique. The triangular formation between the main actors is a common strategy in military law enforcement. Antifa members generally wear black and multiple backpacks, but this clothing is inconspicuous. The woman who assists the man with the ASP wears attire similar to that issued in the Army or CIA. Furthermore, these individuals, particularly the Asian woman, have specific training. Instead of taking selfies or texting family and friends like other defendants, she fixes her attention on the crowd, slowly filming as if to identify faces. Instead of using blatant force, she acts destructively while blending with the crowd. Furthermore, the communication between these actors shows eye contact, but very little speech. Now, why didn't the Asian woman stop if she couldn't kick out the window? How did she know to confer with this other woman? How does the woman in the green cap know the man with the asp? Why does she summon him to help when she could have asked someone around her for assistance? As these questions remain, there are still more unidentified actors conspiring within this video. And next they have a video of a woman using a walkie-talkie around the same time the woman with the green cap is coordinating. And just, they pose the question here. Are the two coordinating with the man who has the asp? We also see a man in his late 40s to early 50s wearing a Scottish, a twill Scottish golf hat. In this and similar footage, he moves throughout the crowd while most protesters remain fixed in one position. they got several angles of this as well. Why haven't these people been identified? What were their motives for breaking this window? 
I mean, this is this is broken down very well, and and you can you can look at this, watch the videos for yourself. Look, I don't have the answers, but I think these are the right kind of questions that need to be asked. And it, it puts further doubts on why are the Capitol Police still sitting on 14,000 hours of security from cameras inside the building? I mean, look, there's, I don't want to sound alarmist, but, but I think we need to face a couple of important facts here. The January 6th event is and has been used as justification to ramp up the weaponization of the federal government against anyone who disagrees with what those in that political class are doing. If you have questions about the 2020 election, well, that's uh, that's insurrectionist kind of behavior and that undermines confidence in our government. Oh, really? Is that what it is? Is You know, the people are, are somehow wrongly doubting that the people who are in power have our best interests in mind or are doing the things that they ought to do? Because the thing that has given me the greatest pause is simply watching their actions, listening to their rhetoric, and realizing this is only about power for them. This has nothing to do with with, uh, defending God-given rights, which is the reason government was called into existence in the first place. So yeah, if, if undermining the confidence of government is a crime, those politicians need to take a look in the mirror because it's their actions, it's their policies, it's the mandates they have forced on people, the harm that they have done that has undermined most people's confidence, including my own. I don't have any confidence in them. That's why I spend as little time as possible listening to anything that they have to say. They are irrelevant to my interests. I just try to keep as much distance as I can between me and them. I grudgingly pay my taxes, but not a dime more than I absolutely have to. I minimize my government footprint at every step, and I intend to do this uh, for the rest of my days. But it's not enough. It's not enough. The political class is saying you, you must acquiesce. You have to yield to what we tell you to do. You have to think what we tell you to think. And some of the things that are being forced on us, I mean, it's, it's bad enough to be told to do by people who wrongly believe that somehow they are your superiors or they know what's best for you, when they clearly don't. But when they're telling you, you cannot acknowledge reality, you must pretend with us that, uh, you know, whatever we say is, is, is true, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the show, I think it was a couple of days ago, I think it was Theodore Dalrymple who said, the purpose there isn't to, to, to fool you. When people in authority insist that you repeat lies, they're trying to humiliate you. They're demonstrating to you that, uh, yes, you know it's false, we know it's false, but we own you. And because we own you, you will say whatever we tell you to say. Now, if that sounds like a really harsh way to say it, I don't know, I don't know a better way to say it. But I, I think that really gets to, to the heart of the matter. So hopefully this isn't, uh, you know, raising your blood pressure. Because that's not my goal. But I hope it is stiffening your backbone and getting you to realize you've got to put your foot down. 
You've got to make the conscious decision. I'm not going to go along with this. I reject that kind of leadership in air quotes. And start asking the questions about why won't they? Why won't they come clean about what happened there? It's extremely clear that there were people who were acting in a very coordinated fashion. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the, the right wing is out there, you know, trying to overthrow the government. But the people who were acting in that coordinated fashion clearly had some kind of training. Who were they? Why don't we know what their names are? Why, why are they not listed as defendants? You know, I don't want to make it sound like uh, everything that happens, you know, is the result of a false flag. But I think we've seen enough uh, instances of federal government saving us from people that we later find out, wait a minute. You guys sent informants or you sent agents provocateur into a particular group to sit there and stir people up and ask around and try to generate interest in doing something illegal until someone stupidly nods their head and says, yeah, okay, (laughs) sure, why not? That's not the same thing as, uh, wow, you guys uncovered a real dangerous plot and saved us. No, what you did was you saved us from a monster of your own creation. From a plot that didn't really exist until someone in government came up with it. By the way, God's help is always needed and appreciated at times like these. So let's not forget to ask him for some favors as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.